This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. A fire is, uh, has ripped through a packed Coptic Orthodox church during morning services in Egypt's capital, killing 41 worshipers, including at least 15 children, injuring 16 others. The church quickly filled with thick black smoke Sunday, and witnesses said several trapped congregants jumped from upper floors to escape. The cause of the blaze in the church in a working-class neighborhood of Mbaba was not immediately known. An initial investigation pointed to an electrical short circuit, according to a police statement. Footage from the scene circulated online showing burned furniture, including wooden tables and chairs. Firefighters were seen putting out the blaze while others carried victims to ambulances. Salman Rushdie is on the road to recovery, according to his agent on Sunday, two days after the author of the Satanic Verses suffered serious injuries in a stabbing at a lecture in New York. That announcement followed news that the lauded writer was removed from a ventilator Saturday and able to talk. Literary agent Andrew Wiley cautioned, though, that Rushdie's condition is headed in the right direction, but his recovery would be long. The 75-year-old Rushdie suffered a damaged liver and severed nerves in an arm and in an eye that he is likely to lose, according to Wiley. Previously in a statement... He says though his life-changing injuries are severe, his usual feisty and defiant sense of humor remains intact. That's according to The Sun, uh, Zafar Rushdie, in uh, a Sunday statement that stressed the author remained in critical condition. 24-year-old Hadi Matar of Fairview, New Jersey, pleaded not guilty on Saturday and to attempted murder assault charges in what prosecutors called a targeted, unprovoked, pre-planned attack. This is VOA News. Mexico's president has begun exploring plans to sidestep Congress to hand formal control of the National Guard to the Army. That could extend the military's control over policing in a country with high levels of violence. The idea has raised hackles because uh, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador won approval for creating the force in 2019 by pledging in the Constitution that it would be under nominal civilian control. Part of that constitutional amendment also stipulated the military would have to exit policing roles by 2024. But now Lopez Obrador wants to keep soldiers in the streets longer. He no longer has the votes in Congress to amend the Constitution, so he says he may do it as a regulatory change. Police say that a man drove his car into a barricade near the U.S. Capitol and then began firing gunshots in the air before fatally shooting himself. Police say the man did not seem to be targeting any member of Congress. The incident happened just before 4 a.m. at a vehicle barricade set on Capitol Hill. Authorities say that as the man was getting out of the car, the vehicle began or became engulfed in flames. Police say he then opened fire, shooting several bullets into the air as police approached. The man's identity has not been released, but investigators have located addresses for him in the state of Delaware and Pennsylvania and have learned he had a criminal history. In the past decade, Japan's economy grew at an annual rate of 2.2% for the April-June quarter from the previous quarter as consumer spending rebounded with COVID-19 restrictions getting gradually lifted. 
Japan's gross domestic product of GDP, the sum of the value of a nation's products and services, expanded to 0.5% from January and March, during with which the economy had stayed flat, according to preliminary government estimates released Monday. Economists had forecast 0.6% on quarter growth. The annual numbers show how the economy would have grown if the quarterly rate were to continue for a year. Private consumption jumped at an annual rate of 4.6%. Actor Anne Hesch has died nine days after she was injured in a fiery car crash. She was 53. Spokeswoman Holly Baird said Sunday night that Hesch had been peacefully taken off life support. She had been on life support after suffering burns and a major brain injury when her car crashed into a home. She first came to prominence on the NBC soap opera Another World in the late 1980s before becoming one of the hottest stars in Hollywood in the late 1990s. She was a constant on magazine covers and in big-budget films opposite actors including Johnny Depp and Harrison Ford. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Monday, August 15th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, another U.S. congressional delegation arrives in Taiwan amid continued military tensions with the island's giant neighbor, China. If there's going to be anyone who wants to come to Taiwan to show their support, they are more than welcome to visit us, and that should not be stopped by China. 41 Egyptians die in a fire at a Coptic church in a Cairo suburb. People shouted and screamed as the fire raged on the top floors of the martyr Abu Sefain church. Witnesses say it took firefighters three hours to arrive at the scene. And acclaimed author Salman Rushdie suffered a ventilator and his health is improving after an attack at a public appearance in New York. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian officials say Russia's military shelled residential areas across Ukraine. They also say their own fighters have damaged the last working bridge of a river in occupied southern Ukraine, hurting Russia's ability to resupply its military. This as the United Nations chartered ship loaded with 23,000 metric tons of grain destined for Ethiopia set sail from a Black Sea port. It's the first shipment of its kind in a World Food Program's plan to assist countries facing farming. Ukraine and Russia reached a deal with Turkey on July 22nd to restart Black Sea grain deliveries, addressing the major export disruptions that has occurred since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Ethiopia is one of five countries that the UN considers at risk of starvation. A U.S. delegation of lawmakers arrived in Taiwan on Sunday for a two-day visit during which they will meet with President Tsai Ing-wen. It's the second high-level group to come amid continued military tensions with the island's giant neighbor, China. The de facto U.S. embassy in Taipei said the delegation is being led by Senator Ed Markey, who has been accompanied by four other lawmakers on what is described as part of a larger visit to the Indo-Pacific region. This, as China's foreign minister says, additional international delegations are, quote, more than welcomed, unquote, to visit Taipei. His comments follow China's furious reaction to last week's Taiwan solidarity trip by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. More from VOA's Bill Gallo in Taipei. 
China's military has come closer than ever to Taiwan, surrounding the island with shows of force. China even flew ballistic missiles over Taiwan for the first time, a response to a visit by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But China won't deter Taiwan from welcoming future delegations, says Taiwan's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu, who spoke with VOA. If there's going to be anyone who wants to come to Taiwan to show their support, they are more than welcome to visit us, and that should not be stopped by China. Other senior U.S. lawmakers have already said they'll also soon make solidarity trips to Taiwan, risking more furious reaction from Beijing. Although China says its military drills have ended, the threat isn't over. China's planes continue to cross the de facto sea border in the Taiwan Strait. A recent poll suggested just 1.6 percent of Taiwanese support unifying with China. Some Chinese diplomats are resorting to threats, with one suggesting Taiwanese be re-educated. Asked about those comments, Wu held back laughter. We live in a free society, and freedom and democracy has become part of our lives, and we believe in that. And if the Chinese government wants to change that, the Taiwanese people are going to say, no way. Taiwan's government also rejects China's threats, saying it will not be prevented from conducting its own foreign policy. Bill Gallo, BOA News, Taipei, Taiwan. Egypt's health ministry says that 41 people were killed when a fire broke out in a Coptic church in a heavily populated Cairo suburb of Ibaba. Witnesses say the fire started following a short circuit in an air conditioning unit. Edward Uranian reports for VOA from Cairo. People shouted and screamed as the fire raged on the top floors of the martyr Abu Sefain church. Witnesses say it took firefighters three hours to arrive at the scene. Many of the victims were children. Egyptian media, quoting eyewitnesses, reported that the fire started after a power outage at the church caused an electrical generator to turn lights and air conditioning units on, triggering a short circuit in one of them. Prime Minister Mustafa Madbouli, along with General Ahmed Rashid, the governor of the Giza province where the church is located, went to the scene of the fire. They presented the government's condolences along with pledges to help the families of the victims. Matbouli says he and members of his government inspected the site of the fire and are prepared to pay 100,000 Egyptian pounds to the families of those who died and 20,000 pounds to families of those who were injured, in addition to providing top-notch treatment to victims who were hospitalized. 100,000 Egyptian pounds would be about $5,214. 20,000 pounds would be just over $1,000. Authorities have also pledged to set up technical and engineering committees to investigate the cause of the fire. Egyptian political sociologist Saeed Sadiq tells VOA that the church is located in a neighborhood full of narrow streets and alleyways. The area was a battle zone between government forces and Islamic militants in 1990. Coptic churches are usually located in very poor areas, uh, overcrowded, and uh, this is Sunday service, by the way, and that's why a high toll. Because they exist in overcrowded area, usually alleys, separate defense and fire brigades cannot reach it that quickly. 
So this is a problem. The incident came nine years to the day government security forces evacuated a Muslim Brotherhood sit-in camp in the north of Cairo, resulting in a large number of casualties. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. Thank you, Edward. Acclaimed author Salman Rushdie remains hospitalized with serious injuries, though he has been taking off a ventilator and said to be improving. The news comes after being attacked last week at a public appearance in New York State, while police seek to determine the motive behind an attack that drew international condemnation. The author of the quote, Satanic Verses, unquote, with fictionalized parts of the life of the Prophet Muhammad with images that offended some Muslims, was stabbed about 10 times by a New Jersey man at a gathering in western New York. Pan America, of which Rush is a former president, is a non-profit that works to defend free expression globally by advancing literature and human rights. Drew Menneker, chief operating officer of Penn, Tells VOA's Carol Van Dam that the Penn staff is enormously relieved to learn Rushdie is out of danger. Has been reported to be, um, as his agent put it, exhibiting his feistiness and defiant sense of humor, um, which is good news for all of us. It's been an incredibly shocking and worrying time, and to, there's no doubt a long road ahead uh, with the injuries that he apparently has sustained, but I think we can count on him to put up the fight and also to, re, you know, we can only hope rejoin us in the campaign as a champion for free expression rights that he has been such so much at the forefront of. You know him as a man. What can you tell us about Salman Rushdie, the man, what he stood for? Well, everyone at Pan America has seen him as an incredible ally. He has never allowed himself to be defined as a person uh, under threat. It would be fully understandable for him to have withdrawn from the public stage, but he chose not to let that danger define him as a writer or as a citizen of the world. Instead, he stood as a champion of free speech and of creative expression. I think, you know, we all know that he kept writing first and foremost. He understood the power of literature to explore ideas, to press against orthodoxies, to encourage empathy and debate. But, of course, always using words, only words, and I think that's very key. Uh, at PEN America, he became the president uh, of our organization in 2004. PEN America had stood by him uh, while he was under threat, and he came forward uh, as he began to emerge from the most protective part of the time that he's been uh, under the fatwa. Um, you know, when he became president of PEN America in 2004, he wanted to be sure to be able to do for writers what we had done organizationally in support of him and what other writers have stood for him and be able to work to protect writers elsewhere who were under threat and to campaign for free expression rights more broadly and globally. Can you explain what PEN America does and just how Mr. Rushdie was kind of instrumental in being that voice of freedom of expression to your organization? Sure. Uh, PEN America is an organization of writers and their allies. We're 100 years old this year. Uh, we were formed in the aftermath of World War One, with the idea that writers had a contribution to make, to bridge differences, to bring people together in conversation, to speak out for the right to, to free expression, and to celebrate the creativity and information, the journalism, the poetry, the, the plays, all of the creativity that free expression rights make possible. 
That's Drew Manikar, Chief Operating Officer of PEN America, speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam from New York. Experts warn that a weak response by Western governments to authoritarian regimes trying to silence critics abroad encourages more undemocratic countries to engage in such practices. VOA Persian news anchor Mesil Al-Najid was nearly a victim of such an action. Igor Tishinenka has more from New York. The last 12 months of her life could easily be a chapter out of an international spy thriller. It was shocking. It was frightening. I mean, I really got goosebumps. First, in the summer of 2021, the FBI foiled a kidnapping plot against VOA journalist Masih Alinejad. Five Iranians are suspected of planning to kidnap her in New York City, take her by boat to Venezuela, and then on to Iran. Four Iranian nationals are currently being held on charges of conspiracy to kidnap Alinejad. Then, in July of this year, footage showed a 23-year-old Azeri man on the porch of her Brooklyn home. Police later stopped the man, identified as Khalid Megdiev, and found $1,100 in cash and a loaded AK-47 with an obliterated serial number in his car. A preliminary hearing in federal court is listed for Friday. Of course I'm afraid. I'm a normal human being. But I believe that the regime is scared of me as well. A passionate critic of Tehran, an Iranian-American who works for VOA, a journalist and staunch defender of women's rights. Alinejad has been in exile in the United States since 2009. But even here, she is targeted for her activism. There are several attempts for the Iranian regime to get rid of me. You know why? Because now I became like a nightmare for them. Not just me, millions of women like me. They're scared of our hair. Can you believe that? Tehran denies any involvement. Now under 24-7 FBI protection, Masi is a victim of what experts call transnational reprisal, attempts by authoritarian governments to silence critics abroad. Freedom House says it is seeing more rogue regimes being emboldened. And more governments are also acting within democratic countries like the United States or in, inside the EU where people think they are actually safe after they've escaped the authoritarian country. Several factors could explain the trend, Gorhovskaya says. There is a spread of cheap spyware technology that enables even the poorest dictators to undertake some of these tactics. Another factor is that democracies so far have not really had, had a strong response to incidents even of murder that have happened on their soil. Alinejad, who has over 7 million followers on Instagram, says another problem is the Western approach to authoritarian governments. What is wrong here the tech companies, because the tech companies allowing Putin, allowing Khamenei, allowing all the dictators to enjoy freedom of speech on social media. Why? When the same dictators ban their own people from enjoying social media. As a seven-year-old in Iran, Alinejad would watch clerics on TV give misogynistic speeches. Now, the clerics are watching me. And that's my goal. I became a journalist to empower millions of other women like me to be their own voice. It's hard to say exactly how many women Masih empowers with her weekly TV show, Tablet, but the attempts to silence her indicate that her voice is being heard in Tehran loud and clear. Igor Zikhanenka, VOA News, New York. In other news, Israeli police and medics say Palestinian gunmen opened fire at a bus near Jerusalem's old city wounding eight Israelis. It came a week after violence flared up between Israel and militants in Gaza. 
Two of the victims were in serious condition after the attack early Sunday. The shooting took place at the bus waited in a parking lot near David's tomb on Mount Zion, just outside the old city walls. The attack in Jerusalem follows a tense week between Israeli and Palestinians, including three days of fighting in Gaza after Israel killed Islamic Jihad commanders there. Days of fighting in Gaza after Israel killed him, uh, militants in the occupied West Bank fired into Israeli cities. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chile Rufo in Washington. On the eve of the anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Kabul, Afghanistan's former president has defended what he says was a split-second decision to flee. Ashraf Ghani told CNN that he left while the Taliban were at the gates of the capital because he wanted to avoid the humiliation of surrender to the insurgents. Since then, Afghan women and girls have seen the drastic disintegration of their rights and quality of life. This as the Biden administration pledged to bring what it called the full force of its leverage to protect women and girls in Afghanistan. VOA's Aleta Power reports from Washington. In the years since the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, women and girls have seen their rights degrade dramatically, despite what the White House says are their constant efforts to pressure the Islamist group. During the chaotic withdrawal last year, the White House touted their influence over the group. But since taking power last August, the hardline group has prevented most girls from going to school, forcing them into secret schools. And they've ordered women to cover their faces and stopped issuing driver's licenses to women. The group pegs these edicts to their strict interpretation of Islam. The U.S. pressure is not enough, say advocates. Madiha Afsal is a fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings Institution. She spoke to VOA by a Zoom from an undisclosed location. It's basically been leverage that has not worked, frankly. It's essentially time that we acknowledge that. There's also sort of the question of diplomatic recognition, but that's a question that's sort of far down the road. I mean, the question of other kinds of aid, the question of the unfreezing of the central bank reserves, all of those questions sort of come first. And even that is leverage that essentially has not worked. The U.S. isn't the only nation speaking out for Afghan women. Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, have also tried. Again, with no effect. And analysts say the sanctioning of the Taliban has led to a humanitarian crisis that disproportionately hurts women and children and could threaten the main U.S. priority for Afghanistan, which is to prevent it from becoming a terrorist haven again. Michael Kugelman is deputy director of the Asia program at the Wilson Center. He spoke to VOA via Zoom. I think that many in Afghanistan would blame the United States to an extent for the current state of affairs of the humanitarian crisis in that the U.S. that led these efforts to sanction the Taliban many years ago, the sanctions are still there. And it's mainly because of those sanctions that you're not having money coming into the country. And because money's not coming into the country, that's a big reason for the economic crisis. But for Afghanistan's 19 million girls and women, this demand is being denied. Anita Powell, VOA News, Washington. Native American language experts have been in Central Australia to try to save indigenous languages from extinction. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Only around 20 people speak Patame Southern Aranda, which originated near the city of Alice Springs in Central Australia. Government policies had tried to eradicate indigenous languages until the 1970s. The consequences are still being felt. 
Recent census data shows that 167 First Nations languages are spoken in Australia, but more than 100 are either severely or critically endangered. North American experts have travelled to the Australian desert to share their experiences of reviving traditional expression. Julian Lang is from northwestern California in the United States. He's seen his Carrick language thrive under an immersive teaching method called language hunting, in which an elder teaches a student or an apprentice over three years. Lang told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation the system has worked well. One person teaches another person and that person becomes a seed for so many more. The apprentice will learn how to elicit more knowledge from the elder. We call it language hunting. And so they seek out more and more language. And as you get to a certain level, you finally get to that point where you're conversing relatively easy. The so-called North American Master Apprentice program was developed more than 30 years ago. There are no books or curriculum. Instead, teaching is based on everyday activities and words and understanding are acquired gradually. Lang says the process takes about 900 hours over three years. The United Nations has declared the next 10 years as the International Decade of Indigenous Languages. For First Nations Australians, learning their ancestral language helps them to reconnect with their identity and culture. Indigenous languages are not just a means of communication. They express knowledge of all aspects of society, from history and family relationships to astronomy and food. In 2019, history was made in Australia after a politician in the Northern Territory spoke an Aboriginal language with an interpreter for the first time in Parliament. The fight to use Indigenous languages in the chamber had lasted for years. In the past, politicians were told to speak only English in Parliament and that it would be disorderly if they didn't. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Hi, this is Larry London, and Border Crossings is with you every day, playing requests and dedications starting at 1500 Universal. And throughout the month of August, I'm giving away the new Now 83 CD, which features Kendrick Lamar, Dove Cameron, Tyga, Imagine Dragon, Shawn Mendes, Diplo, and the list goes on and on. The weekend, Camila Cabello, Doja Cat. It's all on Border Crossings at 1500 Universal. Listen to win right here on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us at voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedua in Washington. Have a great day.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States joined the host of nations and organizations expressing outrage at the executions of four political activists by Burma's military regime. The United States condemns in the strongest terms the Burma military regime's executions of pro-democracy activists and elected leaders Ko Jimmy, Fayuze Taw, Hia Myo Ong, and Ong Thurazo for the exercise of their fundamental freedoms, said Secretary of State Antony Blinken in a written statement. He noted that since the February 2021 coup in Burma, the regime has perpetuated violence against its own people, killing more than 2,100, displacing more than 700,000, and detaining thousands of innocent people, including members of civil society and journalists. The executions of the four activists occurred after proceedings before a military-controlled court. At a press briefing, State Department spokesperson Ned Price described the executions as a heinous affront to human rights, and he called on all partners and allies to join us in condemning the regime's actions and stepping up pressure on the regime and its supporters. There can be no business as usual with this regime, he said. We urge all countries to ban the sale of military equipment to Burma, to refrain from lending the regime any decree of international credibility, and we call on ASEAN to maintain its important precedent of only allowing Burmese non-political representation at regional events. Spokesperson Price said all options are on the table to cut off the regime's revenue and its ability to perpetuate violence. He added, "The United States will work with partners to make sure additional steps are coordinated in order to put maximum pressure on the regime and not on the Burmese people." As Secretary of State Blinken stated, "The United States joins the people of Burma in their pursuit of freedom and democracy, and calls on the regime to respect the democratic aspirations of the people who have shown they do not want to live one more day under the tyranny of military rule." That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 